thank you very much, Arizu, and thank you all for coming. And let me yet again thank our organizers, uh, Nick and Ilya, for this really splendid gathering. It's been really uh, very interesting. The theme you have chosen, I think, is quite uh, fascinating uh, in ways that probably none of us fully anticipated. Can you hear me? If I'm okay. Uh, sometimes I don't project very well. Um, well, I wrote this paper, uh, or drafted it, um, not really knowing what this conference was about. Uh, Ilya contacted me and asked me if I would read about the concept of Ummah in the early Islamic uh, period, and uh, I agreed to do so, but I kind of had the impression this was going to be a, a gathering of Islamicists, and so uh, I hope I haven't assumed too much and uh, not given you the kind of guidance you might need. Actually, if I could take 30 seconds, I might put a couple things on the board to help those of you who are total neophytes and haven't done any Islamic history. Uh, a few dates, for example, like 632, common era, is the death of Muhammad, the prophet. And <clears throat> somewhere around, uh, let's say, 660, we have the beginning of the Umayyad dynasty. And 750, we have the Abbasid dynasty. And most of our literary sources are written up in here. And they talk about this period. So there's a problem with that. I'll talk about that more in a minute. OK. So before embarking on a discussion of the notion of ummah, or community, in early Islam, I want to spend just a few minutes explaining the challenges we face with the evidence for this period and how I believe it must be confronted. The problem, as many of you surely know, is that the contemporary sources, is that contemporary sources for the history of the early Islamic period, the life of the prophet and the seventh century, uh, generally, and the beginning of the eighth century, are very few, very few contemporary sources. Historians, of course, always wish to base their analysis of the past as much as possible on documentary evidence, that is, sources that come from the times and places they are studying, and when possible, produced by the people whose history they are studying. Most of what we traditionally thought we knew about early Islam, however, such as the course of the life of the Prophet Muhammad, or the nature and history of the expansion of Muhammad's first community, which happened immediately after his death, or the actual events and issues of the internal site, the strife, the civil wars that periodically sundered the community's cohesion in the decades after his death, much of this we know only from literary sources written a century or even several centuries later, this much later period. Furthermore, these later sources are hardly univocal in their descriptions, but rather contain many contradictory versions of what they claim happened. The vast corpora of hadiths, or sayings attributed to the Prophet Muhammad, and of akhbar, or historical narratives, uh, undoubtedly contain some information that actually, accurately describes what actually happened in the early Islamic period, but they also contain an ill-defined but very large amount of material that is of dubious reliability. And to date, no foolproof method has been developed whether by traditional Muslim scholarship or by contemporary historical or literary analysis that can unerringly detect what information can claim to be early and what information uh, is much later. Perhaps with more research, we will eventually reach the holy grail of a system for confidently distinguishing early from later reports. 
there are some positive signs in this direction. But for the present, I think the only responsible course for the historian is to base one's analysis in the first instance on the relatively sparse documentary sources from the early Islamic period that we have, to which evidence from later sources may sometimes be sparingly added by way of corroboration. What then are these contemporary sources for our question, the notion of ummah in the early Islamic community? For the very beginnings of Islam, we can fruitfully turn, I think, in the first place, to the Qur'an text, a text of the Qur'an, the revelations, vouchsafed uh, to the Prophet, which were then collected sometime after his death. Um, this text, I think we can, the relatively early date of the Qur'an uh, has been confirmed, I think, by recent research in early Qur'an manuscripts. We know that it's something that crystallized more or less in the seventh century. The process is pretty murky, but it's not something anyway from, say, a century or two later than that. And we can also consider uh, a second text, much shorter, uh, the text of a document that's usually called the Constitution of Medina, which appears to be an agreement drawn up by the Prophet Muhammad with the people of Yathrib or Medina, the oasis to which he migrated from Mecca uh, for the last 10 years of his life and where the first autonomous Muslim community was created. Although this text is preserved only in a couple of later compilations, some of these suspicious texts from later on, uh, its archaic qualities and its both in style and content convince everyone, pretty much, including myself, that it represents the fairly faithful transcription of an, of an authentic early document that has somehow found its way through the long years up to the time of its inclusion in a later compilation, and so it does tell us something then about the prophet's lifetime. So we do have a few significant sources of information from this earliest stage in the history of what we usually call the Islamic community, that is, from the time of the Prophet himself, those being then the Qur'an and the Constitution of Medina. The period following the death of the Prophet in 632, however, is much more problematic. For the period between 632 and the end of the 7th century, roughly two generations, we do have some documentary evidence, some coins, a few inscriptions, and some papyri, and so on but much of it comes from non-Muslim sources or from Muslim coins or rare papyri and inscriptions that provide little meaningful information on things like the concept of ummah or community. This problem also continues after 700, um, but by the middle and the later parts of the 8th century, we can begin to draw on information from literary sources uh, such as administrative and legal treatises that begin to be compiled at that time. So for those later periods, we start to get good information about those times. For the early period, we have a big problem. In my further comments today, then, on the Ummah, I'm going to spend a good deal of time talking about what the Qur'an can tell us about this concept, and then move rapidly through what I like to think of as the tunnel of no evidence, uh, to touch and touch briefly on some of the earlier literary evidence uh, that's after the tunnel, after about 700. It's not an ideal evidence base, of course, but I think it's about all we can do as historians, uh, at least in the time I have today. So let's look at the earliest evidence, starting with the Qur'an. The basic meaning of ummah in the Qur'an, as in Arabic generally, uh, is simply community. Uh, but to look more closely at just how the Qur'an uses this word, and the implications of its usage for the concept of community that was held by Muhammad and his first followers, 
is to embark on a characteristically interesting, uh, sometimes confusing, uh, adventure in the relationship between words and their social reference. For as we shall see, the Qur'an uses the word ummah in a variety of ways, uh, which suggest different aspects of this basic sense of community, uh, aspects that are not always compatible with one another. In a few passages, the Qur'an also uses the word ummah in ways that seem to have no relationship to the notion of community whatsoever, and which I will set aside for further consideration today. These include the meaning of ummah as a set period of time, or a fixed term of time, or the meaning of ummah as a model or paradigm or exemplar. I'm not going to talk about those further. There also seems to be little point in discussing here the etymology of the word ummah, which has been studied in depth by numerous uh, people much better trained in Semitic philology than I am uh, for over a century, and they have tried variously attach it to the word um, mother, or the verb amma, to precede, or the word imam, which means before or in front of, or try to attach it to cognates in Hebrew, or Syriac and Aramaic, or Akkadian, and so on. Um, but their efforts, it seems to me, remain inconclusive, so I don't see there's any point really in uh, I don't think I can improve on their results, let's put it that way, so I'm not going to go there. A number of people have thought about the term Ummah in the Qur'an, and elsewhere, but especially in the Qur'an. One of them is Frederick Denny, and he and others who have worked on the concept have stressed a number of its characteristic uh, features. These include, among others, the idea that an Ummah is marked by unity, that in the Qur'an, ummah seems to have a religious content, and so on. But what struck me most when I read through the Qur'an and reflected on the Qur'an's usage of the term ummah was how ordinary or unexceptional its understanding of ummah as community seemed to be. Ummah in the Qur'an seems simply to be the basic social unit above that of the family, in which individuals live and which give their lives social structure and meaning. Indeed, the Qur'an does not even limit the notion of ummah to human beings because it refers in at least one passage to animals and birds as living in communities. And it also mentions that the jinn or spirits uh, form communities. So it isn't, you don't even have to be human to, to live in an ummah. For the Qur'an, then, the word ummah designates simply the basic social aggregation or grouping into which animals, and certainly human animals, uh, form themselves and in the context of which they live out their earthly existence. The Qur'an repeatedly says that if God had wanted, he could have created people into a single community. The implication being, of course, that he did not do that for whatever reason. Consider, for example, Qur'an 5, verse 48, which includes a typical, <coughs> typical change of, of the person in the, in the text, uh, you know, changes from third person to first person, or vice versa. It says, uh, for each of you, we have made a pathway, a sharia. We have made a pathway and an open road. If God had so pleased, he would indeed have made you one community. But he did not do so in order, that, in order to test you by what he has given you. So race toward doing good deeds. Sometimes the Qur'an suggests that some people were originally a single community that subsequently differed among themselves and broke apart into separate communities. Uh, but in other verses, it describes how God intentionally separated them. Uh, so, 
for example, in Quran 7160, speaking of the people of Moses, the followers of Moses, it says, quote, we divided them into 12 tribes, the Aspat, as communities, Ummah. At any rate, the upshot seems to be that the word Ummah refers to communities that are bounded in extent. They're not universal or all-embracing. Similarly, the Quran makes clear that all communities are given a definite term or limit. That is, they are bounded not only in space, but also in time. Quran 734 says bluntly, quote, for every community there is a time, an ajal, like a deadline or end point. When their time comes, they will not delay it by an hour, nor will they advance it by an hour, end quote. And there are several others that say similar things. One might think at first that passages like this are merely referring to the coming last judgment, when everyone will be judged, meaning that in principle a community might endure forever, that is, until the end of time, until the last day. However, the Quran repeatedly reminds us also that uh, communities in fact are time-bounded, in particular by emphasizing that many communities have existed in the past, but have since disappeared. Such vanished communities are usually cited as examples or lessons since their disappearance or dying out is repeatedly offered as a warning of what will happen to the sinful. A certain parallelism is drawn between a community and a town or city, a qarya, some of which likewise have been destroyed by God uh, for its sinfulness. Uh, quite a number of verses here. One thinks of, for example, the, the people of Thamud and their, their um, uh, prophet Ad, who are cited uh, in the Qur'an as an example of a sinful community gone astray and therefore uh, has been extirpated somehow by God. In another passage, the Qur'an addressing the prophet says, this is uh, Qur'an 13, verse 30, quote, in this way we have sent you among a community. Before it, other communities have already passed away. End of quote. This passage reaffirms the temporal evanescence of communities, the fact that they pass away, but we can also note that by saying, we have sent you among a community, the Quran is making it clear that this particular community existed before the prophet was sent, underlining yet again that the Quran envisions the world as full of separate communities, which form and after a time dissolve or are destroyed to be replaced by others in the natural succession of things. Does an ummah, simply by virtue of its being a community, have a particular moral quality a priori. The Quran states in two, passage, two passages that for every ummah, God creates a mensak, a set of rights. Quran 22:34 reads, quote, for every community we have created a ritual, or mensak, that they should mention the name of God over whatever animal of the livestock he has provided for them. Your God is one God, so submit to him and give good news to the humble, end quote. And it's another, another reference to Mansak in 2267. It's less specific, so I won't recite it here. The implication seems to be that each community starts out somehow. Maybe God gives it them with, with the basics required to become good in God's eyes. Numerous passages in the Quran also encourage people to form a good community. Typical is Quran 3104. Quote, let there be one community of you, calling people to good and commanding the right and forbidding wrong. Those, they are the ones who prosper, end quote. This is in line with the main thrust of the Quran as a whole, which, as far as I'm concerned, 
enjoins every individual, all who hear it, to believe in the one God and to act righteously. Numerous verses point out another key feature of communities as depicted in the Quran, that each community has a messenger or prophet sent to it to guide it. Quran 10.47, for example, says, For every community there is a messenger, a rasul. When their messenger comes, it will be decided between them and justice. They will not be done evil. Well, now, by they, I assume the Quran means those in the community who follow the messenger. Sometimes this messenger is called a warner, a nadir, as in Quran 35.24. There, there has not been any community except that a warner has passed away in it. The Quran repeatedly points out, however, that these messengers will be rejected by their audiences. So in Quran 23.44, quote, Then we sent our messengers in succession, I guess to different communities. Whenever its messenger came to a community, they called him a liar. So we caused some of them to follow others, and we turned them into stories, away with the people who do not believe, end quote. In like manner, the verses noted above that describe how each community is assigned a right or mensak by God notes that many communities abandon this basic guidance. And the encouragement to uh, people to form a good community implies that this is not something that happens automatically, uh, that there are communities that are sinful, which we, of course, would know from many other examples. In the Quranic view, then, communities, or umam, do not, in and of themselves, have a particular moral or religious character. They can be either good or bad in nature, depending on what the people in them do. In Quran 7.168, for example, the speaker, presumably God, referring to humankind, says, quote, We divided them into communities on the earth, some of them righteous and some of them other than that, and we tested them with good things and bad. In the Quranic view, then, communities, or umam, are the natural units of human society and exist in abundance in the world. But while all communities, in the end, acquire a moral status as either righteous or unbelieving, an ummah in itself has no given or predefined moral character, but is merely an empty vessel that receives a moral quality through the actions of its members. This brings us, however, to a matter on which the Quran seems to make uh, puzzling or contradictory statements, and that is on the question of judgment, the last judgment. The Quran speaks frequently about how communities will be raised at the last day to face judgment. On the one hand, in many passages, the Quran appears to suggest that communities will be good, or more often than that, bad in their entirety. In the phrase, for example, we cause some of them to follow others, the one we just read, we can hear a suggestion of the power of social pressure or public opinion, which overcomes the preaching of a community's assigned messenger and makes uh, them people who do not believe, even those people maybe who are tempted to believe are sort of uh, swayed by public opinion of unbelievers around them not to follow the, uh, their prophet's message. Or we can consider Quran 40 verses 5 to 6, which states in part, uh, each community was determined to seize its messenger and disputed by means of falsehood to refute the truth. So I seized them, and how was my retribution? In this way, the word of your Lord has proved true against those who disbelieve. They are the companions of the fire. End of quote. Quran 738 states clearly, quote, He, I assume God, 
he will say, enter into the fire among the communities of jinn and humans who have passed away before you. Whenever a new community enters it, it curses its sister community. These and other verses suggest that at the judgment, the straying community will be judged as a whole. Similarly, the Quran's proclamation that on judgment day, each community will be raised and come forth together for judgment, and a witness from among them will testify on how they have behaved, seems to imply that the community will be judged collectively as a body. So, Quran 1689, quote, on the day when we raise up in every community a witness against them from among them, unquote, or also 1684, on the day when we raise up a witness from every community, then no permission to speak will be given to those who have disbelieved, nor will they be allowed to make amends. Their fate is sealed by that time. This notion of collective punishment also is implied, I think, by the many verses in which the Quran warns its hearers by referring in passing to the sinful communities of the past that have vanished, uh, that, that have been extirpated by God whether it is the people of Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea, or the people of Ad who disbelieved, uh, or the people of Tubba, of whom it is said, quote, we destroyed them, surely they were sinners, and would you remove, pretty blunt. These, of course, are instances of God punishing communities in their earthly life, but they surely imply also that a similar harsh reckoning will await those communities when they are awakened for the last judgment. This emphasis on the idea that communities are raised as a whole and presented for judgment together, however, is tempered by other passages that make clear that not all members of a community may reject the messenger's message. Quran 43.23 states that the affluent will reflect the prophet sent to them, implying that others might accept the prophet's message. Quran 16.36 similarly states, quote, certainly we have raised up in every community a messenger saying, serve God and avoid a tahut, which maybe means idols. It's not entirely clear. There were some of them whom God guided and some of some whose going astray was deserved, end quote. More directly, the Quran makes clear in a number of passages that righteous individuals will be spared chastisement on the day of judgment. For example, Quran 10.47 states, when their messenger comes, it will be decided between them in justice and they will, be, they will not be done evil. Presumably, this means that God will decide between the unbelievers and the believers who follow their message or prophet, messenger or prophet, and that only the former, those uh, who disbelieve, will be dispatched to the fire. Or, most decisively, Quran 27, 89-90, referring to the Day of Judgment, on that day, whoever brings a good deed will have a better one than it, and they will be secure from the terror of that day. But whoever brings an evil deed, they will be cast down face first into the fire. Are you repaid for anything except for what you have done? End of quote. So these and other passages show clearly that in the Quran's view, the final judgment will be meted out on an individual basis and not to communities wholesale. Since the final judgment is to be individual, however, we can ask why the Quran so often speaks in terms of whole communities being destroyed or vanishing, uh, or vanishing of communities being called forth as collectivities of the judgment and of single witnesses being summoned from each community to bear witness against it. All of that images that powerfully suggest a collective or communal judgment, not an individual one. Without claiming to provide a definitive answer, I think there are three possible explanations that seem worth considering. 
The first one is perhaps that the Qur'an considers those righteous people who live in a sinful community in some way no longer to be part of that community, implying that they would actually not be summoned with the rest of their original community, but rather with some other consisting only of pious folks like themselves. This possibility is attractive, but I think it must be rejected because of verses like Quran 1684, quote, on the day when we raised up a witness from every community, then no permission to speak will be given to those who have disbelieved, nor will they be allowed to make amends. This makes it clear that the communities being judged contain both believers, at least one believer anyway, who can bear witness to what the community did, and unbelievers who will not be allowed to stand as witnesses. So even an, in an overwhelmingly sinful community, the Quran assumes that there are some righteous people who can serve as witnesses and testify against the others at the judgment. The second possible explanation for this, what do you want to call it, the, this dislocation or inconsistency in the Quran, is to assume that the Quran refers to entire communities facing condemnation at the last judgment simply as a kind of shorthand and expression, it being understood by the reader or the hearer that while mo uh, most members of a sinful community uh, would be sent to the fire, those individuals who are actually pious and resisted the sinful practices of their fellows lived righteously and so on, uh, would of course be saved in the end. So it's possible that, we're, you know, that the divinity or whoever is speaking in the Qur'an is simply engaging in a kind of shorthand. I'll admit that it feels a bit strange to accuse the Qur'an's ultimate author of what might be seen as laziness in prose expression, but maybe that's what's going on here. <coughs> um, the third possibility is that the collective judgment or the collective summons of communities at the last judgment may be a reflection of what might be termed uh, the bureaucratic machinery of the end time. That is that the calling up of communities collectively is simply a, manager of, a matter of administrative convenience for the supreme judge or a kind of habit. Uh, people had lived in these communities during their lifetimes on earth and so would be called forth in those units at the judgment. This arrangement might also have the advantage that everyone in a given community would witness the reward or punishment meted out to others the people in their own communities they had known and alive, thus reinforcing the moral force of the experience for them. What was happening, in other words, wasn't happening to strangers, but to kinsmen and neighbors, intimate friends and enemies. This explanation, like the second, also assumes that while people are summoned to judgment collectively as part of their erstwhile community, they are not all judged collectively, but rather individually. So it sort of saves the inconsistency or maybe resolves it. Indeed, Quran 27, 83 to 85, make clear that within each community called for judgment, the winnowing out of the believers from the unbelievers will take place as a first step. It goes as follows, quote, on the day when we shall gather from every community a crowd of those who have called our signs a lie, and they are arranged in rows, until when they come, he will say, did you call my signs a lie when you did not encompass them in knowledge? Or what, what was it you were doing? and the word will fall upon them because of the evil they have done, and they will not speak, end quote. By which I assume the text means they will be speechless, that is, so ashamed that they were unable to reply to God's question to them. So in this version of the end, the unbelievers are separated out of the communities to which they had belonged, and this sinful segment may be condemned together. The righteous, of course, will be rewarded and be sent to heaven. 
An interesting facet of the Qur'an's presentation of the notion of ummah, or community, is the way it relates to the term for Jews and Christians, or relates to Jews and Christians, whom it often lumps together with the term Ahl al-Kitab, or people of the book in the Qur'an. It is well known that the Qur'an contains contradictory passages on Christians and Jews, or on the Ahl al-Kitab, sometimes including the righteous of them among the believers to whom the book was addressed and promising them salvation in the afterlife, and at other times expressing criticism or outright hostility toward them or some of their ideas. But do the Ahl al-Kitab constitute an ummah, or a community in their own right, in the Qur'an's view? Qur'an 2349-53 suggests that God may have considered the Ahl al-Kitab a single community at some point in the past, but that they came to differ over their scriptures and broke apart. Though it says, quote, certainly we gave Moses the book so that they might be rightly guided. And we made the son of Mary and his mother a sign, made them as a sign, and we gave them both refuge on high ground, where there were a hollow as a dwelling place and a flowing spring. <coughs> Messengers <coughs> eat from the good things and do righteousness. Surely I am aware of what you do. Surely this community of yours is one community, one ummah, and I am your Lord, so guard yourselves against me, end quote. So this community of yours is one community, seems quite clear. Oh, actually, the quote goes on a little bit, sorry. But they cut their affair in two between them over the scriptures, each faction gloating over what was with them, end of quote. So at the beginning of this, or in the, toward, in the middle of it, actually, God addresses the Ahl al-Kitab unequivocally as one community. Uh, but that this, post this postulated Christian-Jewish community was a thing of some mythical past that had obviously long ceased to exist by Muhammad's time. So from this passage, it is not clear whether the Qur'an considers the Jews and Christians of its own time also to be actual communities, umam. Uh, it's just simply not clear from the text. And there's another passage that talks about an umma that is cut up by its people, and, and it's a passage that occurs in a, in a context discussing Christianity. So. Quran 3.1.10 does not call the Ahl al-Kitab a community, but it seems to imply that they are one by distinguishing them from Muhammad's followers, whom it addresses as follows. Quote, you are the best community ever brought forth for mankind, commanding right and forbidding wrong and believing in God. If the people of the book had believed, it would indeed have been better for them. Some of them are believers but most of them are wicked. So it sounds like they're separate from the community that the, the text is being preached to. On the other hand, the Quran sometimes identifies subgroups of righteous people within the Ahl al-Kitab as constituting communities. Quran 3, 113 to 114 says, quote, among the people of the book, there is a community which is upstanding. They recite the signs or verses of God during the hours of the night and prostrate themselves. They believe in God in the last day and command right and forbid wrong and are quick in the doing of good deeds. Those are among the righteous, end quote, or Quran 7, 159. Among the people of Moses, the column of Moses, there was a community which guided by the truth uh, and by means of it acted fairly. That's end quote. So in these verses, the word ummah seems to be used not for the peoples of the book as a whole, but rather for a subset of them, a certain part of them. So it seems to be used in the vague way that we use community in English sometimes. 
In sum, the Quran considers communities, at least in the human context, as the normal setting or context for human life. Groupings that embrace only a subset of humanity and that exist only for a limited duration, albeit perhaps for many generations, with communities arising and dying out over time, succeeding one another as the world evolves. Sub-communities can emerge out of others, as we have seen among the Ahlul Kitab. In other words, the Qur'an's view of community conforms to the normal, everyday conception of community that is, I think, shared by most of us and most people. Communities are not intrinsically moral, but each one generally acquires a character as either sinful or righteous, depending on how its members behave. What then about the idea of a universal Muslim community or ummah? Does the Qur'an ever speak in such terms? A few passages might be taken to suggest this idea, but upon closer examination, their relevance uh, seems to me to be questionable. The phrase ummah muslima, Muslim community, we might translate it, does in fact occur once in the Qur'an, in Qur'an 2.128. But this passage is part of a prayer made by Abraham with his son Ishmael uh, as they establish the foundations of the Kaaba. The verse reads, Our Lord, make us both submitted to you, Muslimaina laka, Muslimaini laka, and make from our descendants a community submitted to you, Ummatan Muslimatan laka. So clearly in this instance, it is a reference not to an actually existing community, but to a wish Abraham is making for something in the future. It has no relationship with the Prophet Muhammad and his followers. Um, this is in keeping with the Quran's normal use of the word Muslim and Islam as meaning one who has submitted himself to God's will, uh, or one who is dedicated to God's will, or something like that, one devoted to God. Not Muslim in the later reified sense of someone who follows the religion established by Muhammad. There is also the verse cited above, uh, Quran 3.1.10, in which the Prophet's followers are apparently told that, quote, you are the best community ever brought forth for mankind, commanding right and forbidding wrong and believing in God, end quote. This might be construed to refer to a universal Muslim community and was by much later or somewhat later Muslim exegetes, sometimes so construed. But it can be just as easily understood as a reference to Muhammad's local community of followers, as many later com uh, commentators did. Um, I can find the passage here. Uh, I have a little dislocation on the text. I've got to find a footnote here and read it to you. It's very interesting when you look at the commentaries on this passage, um, you find um, the earliest commentators take this passage and always interpret it as, as meaning uh, strictly uh, the, the community of the prophet himself. So the most frequent understanding in, the, in these early communities was that this best community is, as some commentators say, it was the community of people who made the hijra or migration with the Prophet from Mecca to Medina. So that means already back in the Prophet's time. And it's specifically that particular community. It's not some kind of broad general community. Um, but when we look at other uh, commentators, uh, like the great commentator of Public Guide 923, so way down the line here, you know, somewhere over by the end of the wall there, um, he collects a lot of earlier commentators' opinions. And we find this early opinion saying that this refers to Muhammad's own community in Medina. But you start to see by that time also references to some authors who say 
Uh, this means uh, those who respond positively to Islam. So they've generalized it into sort of a grand uh, universal Muslim community. Well, the, the more narrow interpretation of Ummah then would be much more in keeping with the general use of the word Ummah in the Qur'an as we have seen it. Most strikingly, the Qur'an does not seem to conceive of an Ummah or community that is universal or eternal in duration. Or if it does, that notion of community is definitely an exception in a Qur'anic discourse. Because of over 60 instances where Ummah is used, there's only a pair that could possibly be understood in this way as reference to a universal community, and even those, as I say, uh, most early commentators didn't understand that way. In any case, even if we wish, against the evidence in my view, to see in these few verses some hint of the notion of a universal Muslim community, it is clear from the Quran that there is nothing salvific about being part of such a community, even a Muslim community. Uh, the Quran, as we have seen, notes that all communities have had their messengers sent to them. What saves a person from the fire is not being part of such a community, but being a believer in the messenger following the moral injunctions preached by that messenger. Um, so this, too, is very much in line with the Qur'an's basic message, which is consistently focused on instructing each of us as individuals, leading us to a moral life. It is a forceful and uncompromising summons to every one of us, every one of its hearers, to recognize God's oneness and to live righteously in accordance with God's injunctions in his or her own personal life. If one fails to do these things, even being part of the Muslim community, will not spare one chastisement when the judgment day arrives. Well, so much for the Quran. Besides the Quran, the only testimony that survives, and, and my uh, further comments on other texts will be much briefer than the Quran. The Quran is a very rich source. Um, besides the Quran, the only testimony that survives from the earliest community of the time of the Prophet uh, is the text that I mentioned before, the so-called Constitution of Medina, or sometimes called the Ummah document community document. This purports to be the text of an agreement or a series of agreements drawn up between Muhammad and his Meccan followers on the one hand and the people of Yathrib, later called Medina, setting down the nature of their political association. Although it is transmitted only in later literary sources, the fact that the text is found in closely similar form in two different texts, the archaic character of its language, and the fact that its content and linguistic usage differ from what anyone fabricating such a text at a later time would have used or would have said had convinced all scholars that this text must be taken as having virtually documentary status. Although the text opens by declaring that the parties mentioned in it as signatories are one community, apart from other peoples, it does not provide much evidence for its concept of community, because the word ummah occurs in it altogether only twice. In the opening paragraph, it declares the signatories to be a single community, I just read it to you, implying that they are a group that shares a common life according to the terms laid out in the document. Farther along, in addressing the status of Yathrib's Jews, it declares that the Jews of Ben Auf are a community with the believers. In the Yehud Ben Auf, Ummah Ma'al Mu'minin. This does not change our sense of what Ummah means, except that it makes clear that the primordial autonomous community established by Muhammad included at least some of Yathrib's Jews within the community. We can say, however, that the constitution of Medina seems to confirm the notion of community or ummah 
presented in the Quran. Just as some passages in the Quran affirm that some among the Ahlul Kitab were to be counted among the believers, so the Constitution shows that in the Prophet's actual community in Yathrib or Medina, at least some Jews were included. Further, it is clear from the Constitution that Ummah refers to a particular human community, bounded in time and space. And inasmuch as many passages in the Constitution mention uh, the need to adhere to proper dealings with one another, the document's main focus is on the mechanics of political relations among the different tribal groups, some of them Jewish, some of them not, who have come together to form one community apart from other people in accordance with the document. The document then offers us a glimpse into a very specific community, not some kind of idealized universal one. Moving out of the period of the Prophet's life, we lose evidence provided by the Quran and the Constitution, and for much of the seventh century we enter, as I said, this historiographical tunnel where we really don't have much evidence to, uh, to rely on, uh, and much of what survives does not tell us uh, directly about concepts of community. We might imply it in certain ways, but it doesn't use the word ummah, so it's pretty hard to say uh, anything very um, convincing on, on that basis of weak evidence. We can, however, consider a few hints. And they're not more than hints, but they are hints. One such hint uh, is found in the later chronicles that describe events of the decades following the prophet's death in 632. In some traditions, we find events uh, assigned to what can be called named years. Uh, that is, instead of being dated year 45 of the Hijra or something like that, it will say a certain event uh, took place in the year of the elephant or in the year of civil strife, or they, they have a name for the year rather than a date by some dating era. And among these named years, we find one called the year of coming together, Am al-Jama'ah, or maybe the year of community, Jama'ah could mean that too, actually, marking the end of the first civil war in 660 Common Era, when after five years of bitter division, disquabbling believers came together in recognizing the uh, Umayyad leader, Mu'awi ibn Abi Sufyan, this is the first Umayyad in 660. Uh, one thing that is striking about the word Jama'ah, it's used as in Senate al-Jama'ah, al -Jama the year of Jama'ah, is that it's not a word that occurs in the Qur'an, simply not found in the Qur'an. It may be significant that Muslim tradition remembered this year as being called by this non-Qur'anic word, rather than something like the year of unity in the Ummah. I can imagine Am Wahdat al-Ummah or Tawheed al-Ummah or something. But there is no evidence that such a terminology using the word Ummah was ever used. So the use of this word, this non-Quranic word Jama'ah, instead of Ummah, may thus hint that the latter word, Ummah, was not yet current in a broader sense of a community beyond a specific local one that people lived in, but was limited to particular ones. It's an argument from silence, but you know, it's maybe something. Other documentary evidence makes it clear that the believers definitely thought of themselves as a unified ruling group. The seventh century inscriptions they carved that refer to their leader call him Amir al-Mu'minin, commander of the believers, which conveys, I think, both their sense of being members of a common enterprise as believers, and as a political enterprise too, and uh, as part of a movement that had a kind of military quality, hence their leader is called the commander, Amir. But were they therefore a community uh, in the narrower sense? Some of the believers dated papyri from the middle of the seventh century, also use a very distinctive dating era. 
one that seemed to have dropped out of use or to have been suppressed uh, by the end of the seventh century. Um, and these are numbered years, so you get a, a numbered date for the year. But instead of being called the year of the Hijra, as they would much later be called, they're called uh, years in the jurisdiction of the believers, min qada al mu'minin. This usage, again, makes clear that the believers uh, thought of themselves as, as, as believers, mu'minun. Uh, call themselves min qada al mu'minin, in the jurisdiction of the believers. But it also stresses the fact that they are the ruling group establishing their jurisdiction uh, over their subject. It seems to me that this implies a strong sense of a unified, empire-wide ruling elite, and we might note an elite that was tied to a particular, is still perhaps evolving, religious identity. But as far as I know, there are no 7th century documents that highlight or even utilize the term ummah in reference to this new elite. Again, these are largely arguments from silence, but they hint that the metaphorical extension of the term ummah, community, to mean all Muslims everywhere, and at all times, was a semantic development of the period after the seventh century. There can be no question, of course, that eventually the word ummah does come to acquire this broad sense as a designation for the worldwide Islamic community. That is today the dominant sense of the word. If one checks, for example, the entry on ummah in Wikipedia, uh, that broader expanded metaphorical sense is assumed as sort of the basic idea. Uh, and I unfortunately can't pinpoint for you exactly when or in what context uh, this broadened meaning of ummah developed or began to develop. And to do so would uh, have required me to read almost all of early Arabic literature. I didn't really have time to do that. Um, and not everything is, is in a shamila, so I can't even search for it all there. I try to search a few things. But a few soundings are very suggestive. I need to make a few soundings in some early texts. We can see in some of the earliest surviving Islamic literary text, that the word ummah is still very sparingly used, and mostly in the very restricted sense of um, a single time-bound community, often the community of the Prophet in Medina, not in some broader kind of universal sense. The Quran commentary of Mujahid, who died in 722, hardly uses the word ummah. Even when he's discussing Qur'an verses where the word um occurs, he doesn't talk about it in his discussion of those verses. He uses other words. The slightly later commentary of Muqatal ibn Suleiman, who died in six, the 767, in its discussions, sometimes uses the phrase Ummat Muhammad, the community of Muhammad. But it seems when he does so to mean specifically the community of Muhammad, the Prophet's community in Medina, not some broad uh, universal community. In other words, the community of Muhammad is not the same as the community of those who come to follow or revere Muhammad. It's a kind of important distinction. <clears throat> and the same is true for one of the first works of Islamic jurisprudence, the Muwatta of Malik ibn Anas, who died in 795. But, as we've seen, by the 10th century, the broader sense of Ummah is already established. I mentioned the Quran commentary of Tabari, probably written around 900, um, which starts to cite uh, glosses on certain Qur'an verses where the word ummah is taken to mean um, all those who respond to God in the Qur'an or respond to Islam or something like that. So in the broad sense that it is now very common. Uh, so it seems likely that this broader sense of ummah or community to mean the Islamic community universally beyond the boundaries of time and space is a product of the ninth century and later. The problem is that, as with other terms found in the Qur'an, 
Once a new meaning established itself among later generations of Muslims, it became commonplace to project that later meaning back into the un one's understanding of the Quran text. This, of course, can distort our understanding of what the meaning of the text was in its original environment, but exploration of that vast and fascinating topic has to await another lecture or several of them. For the moment, we can conclude that with a simple, simple observation that the Qur'an does not seem to use the word ummah in the broad sense of a universal Muslim community, which is therefore a product not of Qur'anic discourse, but of the discourse of the later Islamic world several centuries after Muhammad's time. Now that's the end of my actual paper, but I want to make just a few more comments uh, to sort of connect a little bit with some of the things that were said, especially uh, yesterday in the first plenary talk. Um, um, by uh, Charlie Winter, his name, right? uh, talking about uh, ISIS and so on. Um, and he talked a lot about the Islamic State. One thing, of course, that we can note is that the notion of an Islamic State is completely absent from the Quran, never found. The Quran is a powerful exhortation to you and to me as individuals to believe in one God and to live righteously. But it says essentially nothing about politicals organization or political matters. Um, it says nothing about a state. It's addressed to us as individuals, not to a state, or it doesn't tell us how to make a state. The only guidance you might consider to be political guidance that one finds in the Quran is this one verse that goes, O you who believe, obey the prophet and those of you who are in authority. Well, that can mean almost anything. And the development of Islamic political theory in the centuries long after the Prophet died, in the Abbasid period mainly, uh, well, the, the jurists latched onto that verse uh, for all it was worth and took it all over the place. But there's really nothing else, uh, or very little else, if anything, in the Quran that can provide you with guidance. The Islamic theory of the Khilafah or Caliphate, uh, which is maybe the core of its uh, political uh, theory, is entirely a product of later times. The word khalifa does occur in the Quran, or khalifa occurs in the Quran a few times, but it doesn't mean what it is taken to mean in later uh, Islamic uh, jurisprudence, this, this ruler of the, of the state. So it takes this word, starting in 700 or so, picks up this word khalifa and uses it in a new and non-Quranic way to mean the leader of the community, who before that had been called the Amir al-Mu'minin. So when the leaders of ISIS advance their claims to rule, uh, they're tapping into the 8th or more probably 9th and 10th century uh, discourse of the jurists. They're not tapping into the teachings of the Quran or the Prophet. What of the idea of chosen people, whether we like the idea or not? Um, the Quran, as we have seen, uh, sees communities as having both believers and unbelievers in them. Uh, communities are mixed bags, you might say. Uh, simply being a member of the Muslim Ummah cannot save you unless you live righteously. Uh, so there is really no chosen people defined by the Quran. That is, there's no community of people identifiable by some feature other than their own individual belief, such as ethnicity or language or something like that, which pre-exists their uh, identification as being the chosen ones. Each of us has to earn salvation and God's favor for ourselves. ISIS, or Daesh, uh, claims otherwise, of course, but it seems to me completely without warrant for them to do so. 
uh, well, but this is manipulation of religious ideas for political goals, which is hardly new to Daesh. Uh, this has been going on all over the world for centuries. I would like to raise one more point, though, uh, and that is to underline the role in recent developments, uh, recent historical developments. Um, on the one hand, one can say that um, the leaders of ISIS and, and their propagandists and so on are, I think, uh, tapping into a deep sense of anger in the Muslim world and among many Muslims uh, against the West's long history of interference with the Muslim world, our manipulation and dismissiveness, uh, manipulation of their politics, their economics, and so on, uh, our invasion of their cultural space with totally different kinds of cultural values, which they find may be offensive, uh, our dismissiveness of Islam and Muslims, and so on. I'm not trying to say that the West is completely uh, the cause of or has responsibility for the rise of ISIS, but I don't think we can claim to be completely innocent bystanders either. I think we, there's been a kind of uh, unpleasant uh, dialogue between the two sides, and the ISIS response or appearance of ISIS is partly a reaction to that. But there's also another dimension to this, and I'll end with it, and that is the role of, uh, I think, the Saudis or the Wahhabi-type Muslims, very conservative Muslims, uh, in the case of the Saudis and Qataris and so on, the governments, but especially maybe private individuals, who have lots of oil money and who for the past 40 years or more have been pumping lots of money into uh, advancing their own highly restrictive and highly conservative and rather intolerant interpretation of Islam and trying to basically establish that in the Muslim world as much as possible and to undermine more tolerant interpretations of Islam. Um, so I think you know, it isn't that Islam causes something like ISIS, but it's, it's a big tent. There are many different interpretations in there. And the fact is that if you have a very um, jaundiced or uh, hostile interpretation, um, a group like ISIS can reach in there and latch onto it to provide some kind of legitimation for itself. These ideas, these different ideas, are available for everyone to use. Uh, we all wish that ISIS had reached into the tent and grabbed a much more tolerant interpretation of Islam, which also, many different versions of that also exist, but no, they, they chose uh, the very conservative um, and hostile one. And I think you know, it's, it's an interpretation which is readily available partly because of the support of maybe the Saudis and so on. So, well, but that's our oil money, so we, we are also fueling that. So, okay, with that, I will stop. Thank you. <laughs>